Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to History Worth Repeating. Albie Hartley wrote, The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. My name is Barbara Brooks. And my name is Sonia Tiernan. Together, over this series of podcasts, we want to canvas wide aspects of the past, from individual stories to national histories, from political events to emotional tides. We believe that some history is worth repeating, especially if those histories have been previously overlooked, ignored or not deemed worthy of entry into the history books. In this episode, we're going to consider the history of marriage, particularly in Ireland and New Zealand. And we're delighted today that we have with us Violetta Gillibear. Kia ora. Thank you for having me. Violetta's a recent uh, graduate with a PhD from the University of Otago in history. And her, the focus of her thesis was on marriage, and the focus of Sonia's work has also been on marriage, and we're looking forward to her forthcoming book. So we're going to have a conversation about marriage in these two different national environments. So firstly, I want to ask you both, why should we care about the history of marriage? Do you want to go first? Oh, well, uh, I'll give it a go. (laughs) Um, Well, uh, speaking as someone who was born in 1992, um, this is especially a valid question to ask. Uh, We don't see marriage as being a very stable expectation for people Mm. around my age, but uh, that certainly was the case in the past. Most people are expected to get married, and if one did or did not get married, that made a very big difference in uh, how one's life turned out and how one's life was perceived. Mm. Um, so historically, it was very significant. And yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I agree with that, actually, entirely, especially for um, when we're looking at, I suppose, which I do and, and Barbara does as well, looks at gender and women's history. Mm. Um, if, when women get married, of course, that entirely changes their lives <laughs> historically. And I think really as well as historians, that's why, <clears throat> excuse me, we have to, Um, take into account changes in history because we can actually map social changes from that. If we think back to even not that far into the late 19th century, it's not really that far ago when we think about um, historical periods where the Married Women's Property Act hadn't been brought in. And when a woman got married, her husband owned everything, including the children of that marriage. (laughs) So, you know, by looking at marriage and how that's changed and moved on, we can certainly map how relations have happened between the genders and between different classes. So I think it's fundamentally important, actually. And so is that why the state has been involved in marriage? Yeah, certainly. Um, I was listening to something this morning, actually, on another podcast about um, Henry VIII. And it it started to strike me that actually, originally, when we think of marriage, it wasn't even though we think now that it's a pact between two people because Mm -hmm. they fall in love and it's all based on on this romantic ideal. Of course, that's not what the basis of marriage was about at all. It was a contract, essentially. Um, And in the same way as we look at the royals who married because... 
that was supposed to be a pact with a different country or with a different family, that actually worked all the way down even to peasant classes mm-hmm. in Ireland. So it is actually a legally binding contract. And originally it was less about actually romantic love in a sense that it was about these kind of different packs and business agreements sometimes in a sense. And I think this is why the state has that big take and that big say in it and has to regulate it. So do you think the New Zealand state was equally interested in marriage over... Well, uh, yes, definitely. Um, I'd agree with Sonia that that uh, emphasis on the economic and dynastic um, and legal aspects of marriage were uh, was very much at the forefront um, in the early 19th century um, with New Zealand's colonial state uh, beginning and carrying on through. Um, and previously uh, in pre-contact Aotearoa, um, romantic love occupied a more marginal place um, there were waiata aroha, uh, love songs. There was uh, poetry written by Māori about romantic love. But uh, marriage was based in this tribal system and was politically so fundamental um, that this messy business of uh, high emotions and very tightly bonded love dyads uh, wasn't really uh, the, the most stable element to add into the mix. So, mm. Yeah, so it was really much more about alliances between mm, absolutely between, yeah. between groups in the way that uh, certainly it was with the british aristocracy yes. so is is there some way that ireland has a particular history of marriage yeah <laughs> i mean ireland certainly does because and i think what won't shock most people listening is that Ireland has been historically uh, known as a predominantly catholic country <laughs> and That, of course, is something that until very recently, and I would argue actually until the turn of the 21st century, we don't have a clear separation of church and state in Ireland. The um, independence of for the free state, 26 counties, only happens in 1922. So Mm -hmm. we're talking about a formation of entirely removing themselves from British laws, um, generating something that is still our fundamental law at the moment, which is based on a constitution that was written in 1937. And that constitution is the fundamental and basic law of Ireland. But it was written with the Catholic Church, with members of the Catholic Church. And therefore, when we're looking at marriage, marriage is something that is essentially controlled by Catholic ethos. And there, so it's less even about the state law in a sense. The state law maps onto what the Catholic Church says should happen. So even things like divorce, um, divorce only happens, and I think it's extraordinary if we think about it, that it, it does referendums in the 80s about divorce in Ireland and only is brought in through a referendum in 1995. And that was the lightest margin, actually, it certainly made me think when I was a young person just starting to vote that actually this is this really showed how your vote matters. It was brought in by 50.28% in favour against 49.72 against. So it makes you realise actually that your vote counts. But that <laughs> meant that for the first time ever, divorce was brought in in Ireland in 1996. But it was only a few months ago. It was really restrictive. So people had to be separated for four out of five years before they could get divorced. And that's only been changed in the last couple of months, again, through another constitutional reform. So that was mapped entirely and utterly on 
the Catholic Church and what yeah. the Catholic um, religion said. And in the referendums previous to that, priests would preach from the pulpit what way to vote in the referendum, and that's the way their their people would vote. Right. It's so interesting, isn't it? Uh, and perhaps we'll we'll ask more about why for the church it's such a central thing. But mm. how does New Zealand differ from that, Violetta? Well, uh, in many ways, actually. Um, from uh, from the get-go, the separation between uh, church and state was much more pronounced in at least mod- modern New Zealand. Uh, but I should rather say churches and the state because uh, the way New Zealand was settled... Uh, it turned out that uh, no Christian church had an absolute majority population, and so we we never had a state church, mm. um, not a Catholic or a Presbyterian uh, church or anything in between. And um, so our legislation was broadly Christian. Um, the ethic that informed marriage was very broadly Christian as well, um, and deeply so. But uh, this still kind of uh, affected how marriage legislation and marital customs played out. Um, they were much less restrictive uh, than mm-hmm. in Ireland when it came to matters of uh, divorce, for example. Um, No-fault divorce was a development of the 1980s, which wow. is um, yeah. certainly less restrictive. And before that, there were... Um, there were legal provisions to um, have divorce uh, divorce proceedings aired in the local media. It, there was a, a lot of kind of shame and scandal attached to it, but uh, certainly it wasn't prohibited um, mm. or um, restricted to to such an extent. And um, in broader terms, uh, the colonial context of New Zealand and the recent colonial context was important. Um, New Zealand was Britain's youngest colony, and uh, there have been many ideas kind of circulating that it was born modern, so to speak. Um, And so this kind of played into it. I mean, uh, uh, incredibly, uh, a lot of people don't know, but we had our first uh, free-thinking prime minister elected in uh, the 1880s and uh, another successor in the 1890s, John Balance, the first was Robert Stout. So this kind of implies um, a more tolerant climate um, and the bare bones of marriage uh, didn't change a huge amount, but certainly... The frameworks that uh, were built around it were a bit more fluid. Mm. Yeah, I guess though it it still had the um, implications for gender, didn't it? Oh, in yes. terms of what a woman would would do in the Married Women's Property Act, mm-hmm. and the, those things were the same. But mm. so you know, given that contrast, it's so interesting to think about how the idea of mixed marriage is viewed so differently in Ireland and New Zealand. So if you think about mixed marriage, Sonia, what would you imagine? I would instantly think mixed marriage to me is between Catholic and Protestant. Hmm. Um, And I know outside of Ireland, that's very few people would automatically think that's what a mixed marriage is. And yeah, so it's it's very interesting what happens actually because essentially when we've got that, I mean, it's 100 years ago this year that we've got the Government of Ireland Act which separates Ireland into essentially what becomes two states so that you've got the Republic of Ireland being the 26 counties and Northern Ireland being those six counties. And those mixed marriages become something very different in each state. Um, certainly in the Republic of Ireland, there is less of a Protestant community in the first place. But 
there is still, it's still actually acceptable enough in certain areas for Catholics and Protestants to mix. However, because it is a Catholic country in the south of Ireland, in the Republic, the Catholic uh, Church is able to enforce very strict regulations on that. So while there's fewer Protestants, it's very difficult for somebody who is of a Protestant religion to meet somebody else of the same religion and marry them. If they do manage to find somebody who's Catholic, then they would have to adhere to all of these regulations that they'll get married in a Catholic church, that they will agree to bring their children up in the Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. So whereas certainly from my generation, some of my friends would have parents who have a mixed marriage. Really, you wouldn't know about that until you're into your teens because it wouldn't be spoken about. about like yeah. it was a bit of an embarrassment mm. that you would wow. mention that somebody was Protestant because I'm from a Catholic community. So mm. it. It's not something that would have been welcomed by friends and family. But if it was going to happen, the Catholic Church would make sure they had all these regulations. When it comes to the north, of course, it's um, a different because you have until the civil rights movements in the 70s. Catholics have very few rights even to vote in elections. So, but there's also they're living entirely separately. They're going to different schools, living in separate areas. If a Catholic and a Protestant, it does happen, of course, want to marry, essentially speaking, they will have to move. You're not going to be able to stay in the north of Ireland. Um, so it does happen. But it's interesting, since I've moved to New Zealand, I have met people who have ended up in New Zealand because, because. <laughs> either their ancestors are from a mixed marriage in Ireland or they themselves were because it's much easier and it's much more acceptable. And of course, in New Zealand, you're not looking at these two people and thinking they're in a mixed marriage no, because no. they just both sound Irish. And yeah. What's the difference? Right. You know? Yeah. yeah. Yes. And you're talking, speaking contemporaneously as well, not even historically. I mean, that's how I would speak of mixed marriage. If um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's even more incredible. Yeah. So if you think about Mixed marriage in the New Zealand context, Violetta, what would you think about? Well, um, certainly you'd think of race first and foremost. Um, our two broad populations um, since settlement, Māori and Pākehā, that was how mixed marriage was conceived uh, historically in New Zealand. And um, that kind of harkens on to a, a whole distinct history, just the history of mixed marriage um, globally. And... Um, New Zealand was interesting in the sense that it never legally restricted or prohibited mixed-race marriages. Um, But there were shifting tides of stigma that kind of carried um, the idea um, between the 19th and the 20th century. Um, Certainly, religious denominations were important, especially in the colonial era. Um, But a lot of those uh, kind of tensions between Catholic and Protestant, they were also very familiar to British migrants um, Mm. and certainly would have been to Irish migrants who settled in New Zealand in the colonial era. Um, And uh, just thinking back to that notion of religious tolerance, that was certainly true um, socially, broadly speaking as well. Um, People tried to avoid uh, wearing denominations on their sleeve, for example, and um, tried to kind of... Uh, avoid transporting those social tensions from Britain to New Zealand. Um, certainly having a, um indigenous population also made the notion of mixed marriage uh, tied more closely to race. Um, and it was interesting how ideas surrounding mixed marriage changed. Um, before New Zealand was uh, colonised systematically by the British, 
entering a mixed marriage was the only way that uh, a Pākehā settler could gain a foothold in New Zealand, or at least um, the most practical way, uh, by marrying a Māori woman and uh, mm. gaining the rights to trade with her people and uh, having children, entering the whakapapa and kind of participating in that scenario. Um, carrying forward a 100 years uh, after colonisation had caused a lot of disruption, a lot of heartache, and uh, where marriage had been used by the colonial state in the intervening years to uh, alienate Māori land through the land courts, um, mixed marriage was viewed very negatively by Māori and uh, certainly by Pākehā as well. They were the dominant majority. They were the cultural... Um, at the cultural heart of this new nation. And um, so it was viewed with suspicion by both, um, especially in the mid-20th century when a lot of Māori families started migrating uh, into the cities and mixing with Pākehā um, more visibly. So um, as those were the two distinct eras where um, there were high rates of mixed marriage um, and it was kind of noticed, spoken about historically, and um, there was a de very distinct shift. But mm -hmm. nowadays, especially after New Zealand um, filled with more migrant populations in the 80s and 90s, um, it's difficult uh, to kind of think of a mixed <laughs> Is marriage. It's interesting to think yeah. of the, the Roseanne Lang film, My, My Chinese Wedding, you know, about mm. a... Um, a Chinese woman marrying a Pākehā. So, yes. you know, that, that's a, a new... Uh, Spin, yeah, absolutely. So where race is still the thing, but yeah, it's kind yeah. of a more symbolic yeah. thing, really. Thing, it's yeah. tied into like um, mixed marriage rites, um, combining uh, elements of like ceremonial dress from two yeah, cultures. cultures and, it's kind of a yeah. cute, light-hearted thing. Um, mm. Well, uh, more than uh, something scandalous, as it might have perhaps been in the yeah. past. Yeah. 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 So um, race is one thing, but gender is another in mm. terms of who gender we marry, is. isn't it? Absolutely. So um, it's usually very difficult for people to get their head around the fact. Mm. I remember actually showing my son a wedding and explaining to my two-and-a-half-year-old that who asked what is a wedding. I said, oh, well, you know, two people fall in love and they decide to get together for life. And I said, and being a very liberal mum, sometimes, you know, it might be two men and it might be two women. He said, oh, but that's not as interesting, mum. Whereas <laughs> the rest of the world finds it more interesting. <laughs> that in itself is interesting. Yeah. 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 So a child could, uh, you know, saw marriage as something yeah. exciting for a man and a woman. But right. not, but but the rest of the world feels very yeah. concerned about yeah. marriage equality. Mm. Yeah. So tell us about your recent book, Sonia. Yeah, so the the recent book is uh, The History of Marriage Equality in Ireland and, and the subtitle is Wait for It, A Social Revolution Begins because mm -hmm. I do actually think that we, we had a referendum on marriage equality. So essentially in Ireland, if anything is going to be changed to this fundamental law, this constitution, there has to be a vote. There has to be a public vote. It has to go through a referendum. And therefore... It was believed that in order to extend marriage to same-sex couples within the Constitution, it had to go to a referendum. Now, essentially, I didn't actually think, and there was all these constitutional lawyers getting involved in this, but the Constitution, Irish Constitution, does not say anywhere in it that marriage is between a man and a woman, huh? ever, mm. or ever did. Mm. <laughs> However, of course, the lawyers start wading in and saying, well, actually, in 1937, it's assumed that it will be between a man and a woman 
what type of two men or two women would want to marry each other. So, of course, it's put to a, a referendum. And in 2015, it overwhelmingly, when I talked about divorce being only getting through under the slightest of margin, this was a huge margin in in support of extending marriage to same-sex couples. And it was... It caused, and this I think as well is why Why? I'm kind of looking at this as a social revolution because Irish emigrants returned by their, literally by their thousands, including me. I was living Mm. in England at Mm. the time Mm. and I got the, I I got the plane home. It was like a party atmosphere on the plane. Mm. Dublin Mm. airport was like a party atmosphere. Mm. All of these people were Mm. coming as far as Australia and New Mm. Zealand back home to vote in this referendum, which technically speaking, if you've been out of the country more than 18 months was illegal, but (laughs) we won't focus on that. And it became this mass movement that had started, I think, as something that was um, an LGBT uh, campaign. It was part of a gay rights movement very quickly changed into an equality issue because people's parents got involved, their grandparents, their siblings, their friends. And suddenly this was about equality, that it was the aspect that because marriage is such a central part of Irish society and always has been to disallow two people from marrying when they love each other was just seen as wrong Mm. and it just wasn't part of equality. So we got this. So we're the first country in the entire world that has introduced, and I say that very proudly, that introduced or extended marriage to same-sex couples through a public vote. Mm. Australia Mm. slightly Mm. were led by this Mm. when they had their postal vote Uh, to get this idea of you know, would people accept it? Mm-hmm. But it was a mass movement. And actually, all of the other restrictive things like um, abortion being a criminal offence, like um, divorce being so difficult to to secure, they've all come tumbling down since so, 2015. So is this, given what you said earlier, is this really a revolution against the church? I think so, absolutely. And the Archbishop of Dublin, after the marriage equality referendum, said that actually the Catholic Church needs to take, and I quote him, a reality check Mm. on their position of Catholicism in Ireland. And they had got it very wrong. Um, We had situations where um, priests still started this preaching from the pulpit on, you know, about what way to vote. But it was very different. There was one um, priest in North Inner City, Dublin, who, during his sermon the week before, came out as a gay man. Oh, wow. And he got a standing ovation and said to everybody, this is why you should vote. Yes. You had other situations of a priest in Donegal who started directing his parishioners to vote no. And there was a walkout from the church. Mm. I'd like to call it a mass walkout. (laughs) (laughs) So it was entirely different. So suddenly people were not being led. And the Catholic Church has, and I'm not saying, I'm not taking a, you know, a, anything against the Catholic Church, but from the way they got a hold on the people in Ireland when um, independence was brought about, it was really restrictive. It was very, and and some horrendous things have been uncovered, like Magdalene laundries, well, it, like institutions it, so that women it, were put in. It seems to be a gender revolution in many ways, doesn't it? Because yes. all those exposés were thing, terrible things that yeah. happened to women. 
And then as well, though, it has to be said, said though, it's like yeah. there's, you know, the child abuse scandals oh, yeah. that happened yeah. in the Catholic Church. And certainly what we know is it was pretty horrendous in Ireland. And a lot of mm. those priests were simply moved mm. to other jurisdictions um, and other countries, unfortunately. But in an awful lot of cases, that was young boys as well yeah. that were in institutions. So yeah. I do think it's kind of across the board, actually. Yeah. And and maybe also youth against an older Generation. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we haven't had time really, and we'd have to have a quick uh, answer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess we always think that falling in love is what marriage is about. What do you think about that, Violetta? <laughs> well, uh, certainly um, today and uh, in recent history, it has been thought of that way. But uh, looking at the broad swathe of um, of time, that it was uh, very much a culturally and historically specific um, phenomena, the idea of falling in love. Um, people have always been capable of it. Um, but the way that societies and groups of people have expressed love, um, idealised it, and uh, made it a part of their lives has been very diverse. And that's a history worth repeating. FM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.